1: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15
0: a month and 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan auto-renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hello everybody, this is Marshall Poe on the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them, so we thought we'd tell you that.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is Nick C., a host of the channel, and I'm very excited today to be talking to Dr. Adib Khalid about his new book, Central Asia, A New History from the Imperial Conquest to the Present, just published by Princeton University Press. Dr. Khalid uh, is the Jane and Raphael Bernstein Professor of Asian Studies, and History at Carleton College, where he also serves as the Director of Middle East Studies. At Carleton, he regularly teaches courses on Central Asia, Russia, and the Middle East, often with a thematic focus on culture and cultural change, empire, colonialism, and nationhood. In addition to the book uh, we are discussing today, he is the author of The Politics of Muslim Cultural Reform, Jadidism in Central Asia, published in 1998 by University of California Press, Islam After Communism, Religion and Politics in Central Asia, published in 2007, and reissued with a new afterward in 2014, also with University of California Press. And in 2015, he published Making Uzbekistan, Nation, Revolution, and Empire in the Early USSR by Cornell University Press. Uh, Adeeb, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: And Adeeb, I'm really excited to talk about your new book, um, which is in many ways kind of a reflection of the field of Central Asian studies. And since this is the Central new books in Central Asia, um, we'll be excited to hear about some of your reflections as a longtime scholar in the field. But to begin, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your introduction to Central Asian studies, Central Asian history, your training in the region, and how your research interests have developed over your career.
2: All right. Uh, Thank you. I suppose I'll have to date myself here. Uh, I am very much a child of the Cold War. I came of age uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. And I got interested in Central Asia actually in high school. Um, That's the kind of nerd I am, I suppose. And I've been been very, very lucky. To be able to pursue those interests in a professional way and actually accomplish what I th- was only a glint in my eyes uh, in my teen years, but um, I grew up in Pakistan, and I was interested while I was studying the usual, you know, physics and chemistry and math at school that it. All boys of my uh, origin had to study I was interested in, in the world at large and one day I discovered and or I realized that there's central Asia uh, Tashkent is you know uh, 750 miles from Lahore where I Uh, I I left Uh, but during the cold war it might as well have been on a completely different planet Uh, the travel was very very difficult and news did not travel all that easily and I realized that even though we share so much with the region uh, in terms of culture and religion the politics are very different and the modern history is very different and actually we Knew nothing about it, so that's how I got interested in Central Asia. Was a, a purely an intellectual um, um, interest. There, I mean, now people might travel somewhere and uh, get fascinated by a place and come back and say, "Oh, I want to, you know, get to, uh, I want to study this place and get to know it better." Uh, i think for people of my generation that was not really possible with regard to central Asia so it was really an intellectual curiosity that i then went to university and was able to work towards it there was no central Asian studies as such really at that time even when i started graduate school uh, that was the fall of 1986 and uh, the Soviet Union seemed, uh, you know, as if it was going to last forever, and uh, the conditions of work were such that I had assumed that I would be able to, you know, eke out whatever information I could from published sources and whatever primary sources I might be able to find outside the Soviet Union. Since travel there for research was, um very difficult and an, an extreme impossible in terms of research permissions and all of that. And But then there was Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev who had set in motion these uh, reforms that in 1986, no one knew how far they would go or what form they will take. But by the time I had, finished my dissertation, the Soviet Union was no more, and one could go work in the archives and the libraries of uh, what had become the former Soviet Union. So I was very much there at that time. And really one can say uh, that the field of Central Asian studies as a field really developed as a result of perestroika and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. There was there were some stellar works written on Saint before that, but they were uh, written without real access to the region and uh, to its primary sources, which makes them all the more heroic perhaps, but these were really individual works. Uh, this, there wasn't really a field there wasn't really a conversation about Central Asia, the interlocutors of most of these authors. And I'm thinking of people like, uh, you know, the, a bunch of books that came out in the late 50s, Richard Pierce, uh, Sergei uh, Zinkovsky, um, the works by Alexander Bennington, Edward Allworth, all of these It's hard to imagine, I think of that as a field. Uh, Their interlocutors were mostly people in Soviet studies, rather than uh, the study of Muslim societies. And and so really the field comes, takes shape over the course of the 1990s. And now I think uh, the Central Eurasian Studies Society A CSS was founded in 1999, and that is the one organization that takes Central Asia as its uh, area of central control, Um, a a central concern, sorry. And so um, um, that's how the field has grown. I I think now we actually do have a field with conferences and journals and a conversation about Central Asia. that really has come along. I, mean, I don't want to uh, sound too, uh, you know, fallen headed here, but it's really been sort of my career has uh, coincided with the growth of the field.
1: And, and so how does this new book, um, Central Asia New History from the Imperial Conquest to the Present fit within, within your career and within this growth of the field. Because as you write in the introduction of the book, you say that this synthesizes most of what you know about Central mm-hmm. Asia, which for readers uh, is pretty exciting, I guess, you know, um, the opportunity to pick the brain of someone who's been working on the field for Absolutely. so long. But um, does, does this kind of summarize to some extent um, the, the field? Because what I notice is that, uh, unlike some of your other books, which I've read, um, this is not based on, pr- not based primarily on, on your own research, but in, in in some sense is a synthesis of the field. Um, so yeah, um, how does this kind of reflect those changes that you've seen happen in the field? Um, and what directions do you think uh, the field will take moving forward? And, and what role does this book play in, in, in that?
2: Well, I, I, what role this book plays, I will have to wait and see how it's received enough, but I can tell you how I came to write it. I mean, yes, it is a very different kind of book uh, than Making Uzbekistan or The Politics of Muslim Cultural Reform. Those were monographs where the the point is to uh, present the results of deep archival research. Uh, This is a different register of writing where I'm trying to, uh, the hope is to make Central Asia accessible to a broader audience and to present in a single analytical and narrative framework, the history of its modern period. And in some ways, so where it fits in my uh, career, I had always wanted at some point to write a sort of a big general, overview like this so in that sense it's uh, i wouldn't say it's a capstone but yes but maybe you know after this i can retire uh but it would not have been possible to write a book like this without the growth of the field over the last 30 years that i there is you know what i know and about comes from my own research but from reading the works of my colleagues and following the debates there. Uh, And when I teach, uh, the class that I teach in Central Asia is structured a lot like this book. And that class has a reading list that uses materials from all my colleagues. So my job here was to sort of synthesize that Literature, but to make sense of it in my own, on my own terms, and so the narrative structure in there is sort of mine, and that's how I see uh, uh, Central Asian history in the modern period. But it would not have been possible without uh, the literature of uh, that has emerged in the last thirty years. Where the field goes from here, I hope that it will, you know, keep a focus on Central Asia primarily, and that is what will make Central Asian studies Central Asian studies rather than an offshoot of Soviet or Russian imperial or Chinese imperial history, or um, the Middle East field has had less interest in Central Asia, so I won't even... Bring that up. So that's one hope. The other is a hope is that we can, while focusing on Central Asia, still remain in conversation with broader concerns in the humanities. And um, because I think one of the points I make in this book is that Central Asia is not exotic, it's not some faraway place where. No, nothing has transpired that its modern history has seen all the great transformations of the modern world. Um, all the all the uh, all the extremes of the modern age have been experienced by Central Asia, and so we actually have something to tell the scholarly community that is not interested in uh, primarily in Central Asia. So I hope that is something that Central Asian studies can do as well.
1: I'd like to talk about that last point in a little bit more detail because I think this is central to the narrative you're presenting is, is about Central Asia's emergence into the modern world. And you see this reflected in the, the various sections you used in the book, which are Empire, Revolution, Communism and post-communism, and this shows us that these are very modern, you know, with with a big M, I guess, modern intellectual ideas that profoundly shape modern mm-hmm. Central Asian history. Um, and I'd like to focus on each of those throughout the sure. interview. And the first of those, empire, uh, brings us to to another observation you just made, which is that um, Central Asian studies has had close connection with Russian imperial history and to a lesser extent, I guess, Chinese imperial history, um, as opposed to, you know, kind of a, um, looking at Central Asia through the Middle East. Um, talk a little bit about empire, um, the role of empire in, in shaping early modern Central Asian history. And um, I'd like to to also talk a little bit about um, an, another kind of innovation with your book, which is to weave Western Central Asia, that is the parts uh, that became Russian Turkestan, and then Soviet Central Asia, with Eastern Central Asia, um, that is the parts that were um, conquered by the Qing Empire in the 18th century. Mm -hmm.
2: All right, so, I mean, one of the points I make is that, you know, empire in some ways is, was sort of the default form of political organization in in world history up until the 20th century. So in that sense, uh, there is nothing terribly unusual here. Uh, but what is different, and that the reason there is imperial conquests in the subtitle of my book, is that I argue that the incorporation of Central Asia into these two overland empires, uh, those of the Romanov dynasty and the Qing, really is a, a turning point in Central Asia's history, because now we can imagine it in multiple ways, but the idea that the steppe was autonomous up until these imperial conquests, and what these conquests do is, in many ways, enclose the steppe and bring it into, imperial orbits of empires located elsewhere. And so my hope in the book is to keep the focus on how Central Asians deal with that, but also track the transformations that this incorporation into broad imperial, into empires located elsewhere uh, brings about in Central Asia. So empire is um, uh, a central concern in the first part of the book. But uh, one of the things I point out is that both the Qing and the Roman empires shared certain features in common. They um, took difference for granted and sought to manage it rather than efface it. And that both uh, creates new possibilities and new constraints for relations. and so so that is one of the uh, one of the key things I I, I track. The, there are other empires that show up briefly. Uh, the British, mostly from India, make an appearance. Though I, I think I have I argue that the, the whole business of the great game is vastly overstated and overrated and I think it shows up twice in the book. I don't really have very much interest in that. The other empire is that of the Ottomans, which uh, appears as a model, as an inspiration, uh, but again, does not really have a very central role to play in Central Asian affairs, but it is certainly there as a model and a potential inspiration for for Central Asians.
1: And if we think about, um, I'm kind of interested in in how the expansion of empire and and the division of of this territory uh, between Western Central Asia and Eastern Central Asia, is this also a a kind of um, a, a new moment in Central Asian history from that perspective that you see this Strong split uh, between east and west. I mean, how how would have Central Asians prior to the to the conquest thought about the world that they existed, in? Mm-hmm. And, and how does how does imperial conquest and the division along borders um, change that, or does it does that not come until later? Um, yeah,
2: where yeah. do you weigh in on this question? Okay, yeah. No, so that was in some ways the most ambitious part of the book. Was to try and write an integrated history of all of Central Asia, uh, despite its current uh, its division between these two empires. And that, uh, you know, when you teach Central Asia, when you think about its long term history, um, the Central Asia that I discuss in this book, the five independent states in Xinjiang, has a certain unity, not homogeneity, but uh, it. Histories have always been interlinked. Uh, and uh, so that its division between the two empires cannot be taken uh, as a given. Right? We have to see how that happened and what work did it do. Whether that division is entirely the work of imperial conquest is a little tricky again, because there were divisions between uh Transoxiana on the one hand and what was called muholistan or Alta Sheher uh, on the other uh, that do go back um, uh, for quite a while. Uh, so it's uh, it's not purely the work of imperial conquest that this division happens, but the two imperial sets of imperial conquests, Transform that division in significant ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, which imperial orbit you end up in does make a little bit of a difference. But the other thing is that the interconnections between the two parts of Central Asia continued even after, so the, the Qing conquer Central Asia, uh, uh, what is now Xinjiang in, a lightning quick series of um, campaigns between 1755 and 1759. The Russian expansion was much slower and it actually did not come to an end until the 1880s, really 1895, if you really stretch the, um, so uh, the, the division was not instantaneous and it did not, but even after the division between the two empires the interconnections remained and this is something i also uh track in my book in the late 19th century and the early 20th um, uh, eastern turkestan or, or xinjiang was in many ways more closely tied to russian central asia than the rest of the Qing empire it was easier the way you travel from Xinjiang to Beijing was to hop over the Russian imperial boundary and take the Trans-Siberian Railway. Um, that was much faster than actually going overland within the Qing Empire, but also the bazaars of Turkestan, Eastern Turkestan. The Russian ruble was the most trusted currency and most Uh, As David Brophy has shown in his excellent book, that most uh, Eastern Turkestanis really looked west to the Russian Empire and to the Ottomans for models of change and reform. And and
1: this kind of, I think this continues um, at least into the first half of the 20th century when we think about the way that the Soviet Union uh, mm-hmm. shaped Republican era Xinjiang and, and also um, even influenced how national identity among yep. the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang developed. And I think we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we get there, also, I, you know, I think we're moving into the revolution phase, right? Mm-hmm. We've, we've touched a little bit on empire. Um, perhaps it's a coincidence, perhaps not, I'm not sure. But the fall of the Romanov dynasty and the fall of the Qing dynasty happens in the same decade, which, again, allows us to maybe compare
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: the eastern and western parts of Central Asia to one another. How do these revolutions look side by side and how do they affect these the populations of, of Central Asia? Um, oh. And, and I, I guess you could also talk about how does the Romanov, fall of the Romanov dynasty affect Xinjiang as well?
2: Okay, well, uh, I mean, the one thing the two revolutions have in common, especially when seen from Central Asia, is that they happened elsewhere, they were not caused by Central Asia, it was not Central Asian developments that led to them, but Central Asia was profoundly affected by those revolutions, by the passing of the imperial order. But uh, beyond that, the two revolutions are quite different in some ways, that the... The revolution that brings down the Qing is uh, ultimately a Han Chinese nationalist revolution against um, a dynasty that had increasingly come to be seen as racially alien. And the discourses of nation and uh, and race had come into China, and uh, one of first casualties was the Qing, which had been tottering, it had muddled, it had muddled through the 19th century. And but ultimately the revolution against that was that uh, cast in terms of um Chinese nationalism. What was the Chinese nation go- to be? Uh was a matter that remained up for grabs. It's been uh the one thing that happened was that the revolutionaries wanted to be rid of the Qing, but not to let go of the empire that the Qing had built. So China was conceptualized, actually, and this is something that the late Qing themselves did, uh, to conceptualize China, not as an empire, but as, an, uh, as a nation state, which then has an inviolable territorial unity. And that is something that all Chinese regimes, the late Qing, the nationalists, and the communists have all insisted upon. And that's the one thing they all agree upon all through the 20th and the 21st century. But what what was the Chinese nation state to be? Uh, 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 In the early Republican era, it was conceptualized as a union of five races, quote, unquote. In the 1930s, under the later nationalist uh, dispensation, there was a much greater emphasis on homogeneity and racial unity and the Chinese nation were the sons of the Yellow Emperor, the communists borrowed uh, elements of soviet nationalities policy and imagined the uh, china as the union of 55 minzus plus the han the formula of 55 plus 1 um, but ultimately china has always been imagined as a as a nation state and the revolution was nationalist in that sense it did lead to a great deal of political fragmentation and uh, st- certainly up until 1927, but really up until 1949, uh, you can, in, I, I I think I say somewhere that China was in a slow motion civil war that lasted 30 years. And in in that Xinjiang had a very unusual uh, place where um, Han Chinese Uh, For for 30 years, it was ruled by Han Chinese warlords who uh, saw themselves very specifically as distinct from the population over which they ruled, but also uh, were largely independent of the central government. Um, So Xinjiang remained a Han Chinese colony, even if... It was, and form, uh, formally, in, it remained part of the Republic of China, even if the writ of the central government had no sway there. Um, the Russian Revolution was uh, quite different in that sense, that when the revolution that broke out on the streets of Petrograd was really all couched in terms of class and a universalist, largely utopian vision of remaking the empire and remaking the world, and especially the Bolsheviks that emerged as unlikely, unexpected victors in the revolution and the civil war had a universalist view of the world. Um, the, in 1917, all the most non-Russians really saw the revolution as a moment of national liberation but the regime that took place ultimately uh, was universalist. And the Soviet Union that, so they reimagined, remade the Russian empire into a federal union of national republics. And um, so they recognized national difference but it was to exist in a universalist dispensation. So the USSR is the only country that has ever existed that, whose name has, does not have either an ethnic or a, even a geographic signifier in it. And that I think shaped was one of the key things in shaping how Central Asia,
0: today that's shopify.com slash system
1: and i'd also like to um ha- hear a little bit more about um the established and because you know we see a big contrast here right soviet central uh-huh. asia um it's it's organized around uh, especially in the 20s you see the establishment of of these um republics based on these new nationalities that are kind of formed in this soviet context and then with, uh, cause I guess, comes later for Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan in the 30s. Um, but you have something, as you said, very different um, in Xinjiang, where, where things are a little bit of in freefall. it feels uh-huh. like. Um, you have the establishment, two, two different iterations of an Eastern Turkestan Republic in the first half of the 20th century. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, these? Because I think this is a very interesting, but maybe lesser known parts of of Xinjiang's history in the early 20th century.
2: Yeah, all right. So the the Soviets um, had a nationalities policy, whether it was fully spelled out or not, but they really took national difference uh, for granted and sought ways of sort of um, managing it. And that took the form of territorial autonomy that remade the former Russian empire into a uh, federal union. And in Central Asia, that really happens in the 19, uh, in 1924. I mean, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan might have become uh, full-blown union republics only in 1936, but the boundaries that we have on the map today really were drawn up in 1924. And that is sort of uh, the subject also of my last book, Making Uzbekistan. And my argument has been that local elites and their national projects that in many ways predated the revolution had quite a bit to do with the creation of these boundaries, that this uh, is not simply a matter of the. The Soviets are or, or, or Stalin taking out his big pencil and drawing these, mad, these boundaries on the map. Uh, but that is a different vision of politics that at least, I mean, it, it seeks to contain it, but it speaks the language of national self-determination and the will of the people and in mobilizing. Uh, it's a mobiliz- mobilizational regime where citizens are supposed to be active participants. In Xinjiang, in the uh, in the interwar period, uh, none of that. Well, okay. At the beginning, up until 1932, uh, none of that was welcome, and if the first two of the three warlords who ruled over Xinjiang in this period. Um, really wanted uh, the natives to stay in their place and run uh, the province the old-fashioned way with, without political mobilization, without national rights, without any, any concept of the will of the people. And it was a reaction to that, among other things, uh, and a political crisis in Urumqi that led to the creation of the proclamation, the short-lived proclamation of the first Eastern Turkestan Republic, which I find in some ways actually is more akin to, say, the Turkestan autonomy that was declared in Kokand in 1917. it doesn't really speak the language. Uh, a Soviet-style political language is still rooted in sort of a jadid inflected Muslim modernism of the uh, of that period. But while this was happening, while the you know young Zengxin and Jin Shuren, the, the first two warlords, were trying to keep their domain safe from you know bad revolutionary ideas, the Soviet Union was still. the the closest neighbor of Xinjiang. And a lot of Uyghurs had started sending their children to Soviet Central Asia for an education. And it's from there that ideas of uh, national identity, the Uyghur National Project was born in Soviet Central Asia and it sort of returns to Xinjiang from there. So Shing uh, should say the last, the third, and the most interesting of the three war bards actually then gets into a very close uh, um, ties with this with the Soviet Union and borrows some elements of Soviet nationalities policy, including the language of anti-imperialism and um popular enlightenment and so on and so forth, beginning in 1935. And so Xinjiang actually has elements of Soviet nationalities policy implemented uh, in the 1930s when such a thing was unheard of in the rest of China. And the second Eastern Turkestan Republic that was proclaimed in 1944 is in that sense, initially, spoke a language very similar to that of the first Eastern Turkestan Republic. Uh, But quite quickly, it switches to a language where nationality as in uh, Uyghur and Kazakh rather than an an Eastern Turkestani nation. And the language of uh, anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism is much more prominent there. And um, I mean, now we know that the Soviets backed that republic and had something to do with shaping its uh, its discourse but it, it would be too facile to think that the Republic simply did the bidding of the Soviets and was simply a puppet that's uh, not at all uh, tenable but but again the the uh, the developments in Xinjiang and in and Soviet inflation into our Years are quite different. I mean, that's the era in which Soviet Central Asia, has, you know, turned upside down in significant ways. Uh, not just the political revolution, but the massive economic transformations of collectivization, which in Kazakhstan lead practically to, um, you know, uh, almost genocide. But, Everywhere else, uh, you know, society is turned upside down. And you don't really have anything quite like that in Xinjiang in in those years. And these differences
1: continue. And I think this brings us to the the third section of your book, um, which called Communism, which to me, Seems like it came kind of late, but I think it's an, actually an analytical choice, which I found really interesting. And um, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. So mm-hmm. here you're talking about post 1945 or mm-hmm. uh, Soviet Union, post 1949. Mm-hmm. Um, although I guess you talk a little bit about the Chinese Civil War, um, but but really it's the the 50s mm-hmm. onward right. where you're talking about communist periods. Um, and interestingly, on the surface, these should look pretty similar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, both right. both Xinjiang and, and Soviet Central Asia are part of communist systems, they're briefly aligned with one another, um, yet you suggest that the post-war decades were a moment of incredible divergence, even more than the previous period. Um, mm-hmm. I think somewhere you said that the two parts of Central Asia were further apart in this era mm-hmm. than they were at any other time in history. How so, and what explains this divergence?
2: Okay. Yeah. Well, first, uh, a word about uh, the choice of the term communism for this section, and yeah, I mean, some of it is that we just uh, have to have snappy titles for a different parts of your book, but but it's more than that. That um, I think with the Soviet, with Soviet, uh, so the, the two things that first uh, now all of Central Asia is communist, which in the interwar period could not be said of Xinjiang. Uh, And that in in Soviet Central Asia after 1945, and especially after 1953 with the death of Stalin, you have a new era uh, in which stability and institutionalization and bureaucratization come to be seen as virtues with well, the end of the campaign style politics of this Stalinist era. So uh, I have in mind the term that, uh, you know, actually existing communism that used to be used when the Soviet Union actually existed. That's what I have in mind here, that the interwar years in Soviet Central Asia would really, a moment of revolution, of upheaval. And in many ways, uh, a, a great deal changed. But when you look back at it, there's in many ways more destruction than construction, than new things being established. And that really happens in Soviet Central Asia af- after the war. The war itself, uh, that, that's a pretty critical chapter in my book I argue that the war, the, the great patriotic war, the Second World War, makes Central Asians Soviet in significant ways, that they come back from the war, um, millions of them go to the war, they come back thinking of those who come back, uh, do so thinking of themselves as Soviet citizens, and their view of the world is significantly altered. And But also, conversely, that's, the rest of the Soviet Union also begins to think of Central Asia as integrated into it in, in ways that was not really the case in the, interwar, in the interwar years. And after that, you have a number of developments, the, the stability, uh, I mean, even post-war Stalinism doesn't quite see the same kinds of purges that the 30s did. I mean, people might get fired, but they usually don't get shot. Uh, for being, for getting into trouble. And after that, Khrushchev tries to revive revolutionary enthusiasm, but by the time Brezhnev comes into power, stability, trust in cadres, institutions institu- let the institutions do their work. These things create a situation in which uh, indigenous political elites come to Acquire a great deal of influence, control of resources and political self-confidence. Uh, and then that goes with a massive expansion of education and in, of higher education across Central Asia that allows for the emergence of these uh, new intelligentsias in all these republics that are self-consciously Soviet and self-consciously national. And they see themselves as keepers of uh, their national cultures and their national heritages, which they do not see at all incompa- be as incompa- being in- incompatible with being Soviet. And so n- this period Central Asians are nation- Central Asians nationals, Muslims and Soviets all at the same time. In Xinjiang, things are a little bit different where the 19th, initially the, uh, the communist takeover and that's what it is. It's just military occupation by the People's Liberation Army. There isn't really a any kind of a revolution in uh, Eastern Turkestan. But the first few years are Quite gentle, but in 1957, with the uh, the Great Leap Forward, you have a period of upheaval that, in some ways, is comparable to the uh, to the Stalinist drives of industrialization and collectivization of the 1930s. Uh, it's called off after it produces a massive disaster and. Then we have the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution that starts in 1966, and for which there is really no comparison to be found in Soviet history. But it's through that that Xinjiang and its Central Asian population are thrown into turmoil. The Sino-Soviet alliance that had its heyday in the 1950s, uh, fails quite spectacularly and after that the two communist powers come to blows. and Xinjiang is very much at the uh, you know, the, the front line of that conflict passes through Sim- Central Asia and divides Xinjiang from the Soviet uh, Central Asian Republics. And that's where I th- think that there is less communication, less interchange, between the two halves of Central Asia in those decades, especially between 1962 and 1985, 89. And that their trajectories go in different ways. And while in Soviet Central Asia, you have uh, national political elites coming into a, a great deal of power In Xinjiang, uh, the effect of the communist takeover is to reincorporate or really incorporate Xinjiang for the first time in a significant way in any Chinese state. And that incorporation then is followed by basically a demographic transformation where uh, there is a self-conscious policy of settling Han Chinese, um, people in Xinjiang that alters the, uh, the demographic, um, composition of Xinjiang's population. And Xinjiang might have been labeled the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in 1955, but the degree of autonomy, uh, that was allowed in the Chinese scheme of things is, much is a much diluted, uh, a much paler reflection of the Soviet model. That, uh, China remains a unitary nation, nation state. It was never turned into a federation, and the amount of uh, autonomy allowed is is much smaller even in its conception, even in, in theory. And then in practice, that can be overridden um, a lot. And so the, uh, the, the Uyghurs acquired a cultural bureaucracy like in Soviet Central Asia, but not really a political elite. That was, so there are a couple of people, a couple of Uyghur communists, uh, Uh, Saipuddin Azizi and uh, Burhan Shahidi that have a long career. They are great survivors and they remain in power all through this period. Uh, But the power that they enjoy is really much smaller uh, than their Central Asian counterparts did. Mm -hmm. Sharaf Rashidov in uh, the... who was first secretary of the Communist Party of Uzbekistan from 1959 to 1983, 24 years, uh, had, you know, was sat atop a network of patronage and connections and uh, had access to resources in a way that Ms. Herzedin Azizi could not even imagine. So, th- So that I think is the fundamental difference between uh, Soviet and Chinese influence in these decades. And, and its effects it live on.
1: Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I think we'll come back to some of those effects, especially as we move forward to uh, the mm-hmm. next section of your book, which is called Post-Communism. Um, and I'm, I'm specifically interested in tracing kind of the, the history of Xinjiang um, in the decades that you were just talking about and, and thinking about how this connects to what's been happening in the region more recently, um, even in the 2000s, but even in, the, you know, especially in the last couple of years. Um, but let's talk about this, the, the introduction of post-communism or when post-communism uh, really starts in, in both of these regions. And once again, you know, we talked about the, the second decade of the 20th century being one where revolutions Happened in mm-hmm. both both uh, the Russian Empire and the Qing Empire at the same time. Again, um, in the 1980s, we see mm-hmm. reforms hit mm-hmm. both the Soviet Union and the the PRC. Um, what do those reforms look like side by side, and how do the I mean, how do the two experiences affect the region that we're interested mm-hmm. in?
2: Yeah, no, and again, looking at these two sets of reforms from Central Asia is. Um, quite revealing in some ways. So both regimes face some sense of a crisis. And in China, the reform era is supposed to have started in 1978, two years after the death of Mao, Uh, but it it proceeded through um, the 1980s. And then the Soviet Union, of course, it starts with, with Gorbachev. For both regimes, the Absolutely front and center was uh the question of the economy, that the economy, the standards of living were low, uh, especially in China, and that the tempo, that good old-fashioned 20th century word, the tempo of growth was um uh was declining in the Soviet Union. So something had to be done. And um I think the economic shifts uh, in China began earlier, the shift in economic policy began earlier, and in some ways it went much farther than anything that the Soviets ever imagined. And so already in the 1980s, the Chinese are experimenting with uh, special economic zones and uh, basically turning the country into the you know and, and uh the sweat trap of the world and uh, building these connections with uh the capitalist world that the Soviets never really contemplated but uh their the funds took a different path in the Soviet Union, Gorbachev comes to power. His first campaign was actually acceleration, Skorinian, uh, that the tempo has to be accelerated, of, uh, the tempo of economic growth has to be accelerated. And then he decided, he realized that, well, you cannot do that without more transparency and openness. So we get into Glasnost, which is then taken over, not simply by debates about the economy, but also about the political system Uh, and what reform turns into in the soviet union is a is a pretty much a unique example in the world i think of a simultaneous political liberalization and a an economic liberalization that go on at the same time and Of course, that leads Glasnost leads to Perestroika restructuring, and soon the Soviet Union is restructured out of existence. And here, basically, the language of the nation comes in very handy, and much of the opposition to the Soviet uh, uh, to the Soviet regime is couched in terms of the nation. Often, that Soviet nationalities policy. Promised us these rights, and in practice, we don't have those. Uh, so, uh, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, the, the, the rights of the many Soviet nations are the argument for which uh, people push back against the Soviet Union. In Central Asia, the, uh, the political, the national political elites refashioned themselves as as national elites, uh, communists become fathers of nations, and they retain their uh, place at the top. But uh, but that's the, the crux of the matter. That um, the Gorbachev years, the Soviet state experimented with you know simultaneous economic and political liberalization, and really by the end of the period it was incapable of using violence in any, or incapable or unwilling to use violence. Uh, The Chinese state on the other hand, uh, went ahead with Mm -hmm. really far reaching economic reforms so that by the end of the 1980s even, and certainly today, uh, China, basically has a capitalist economy with a strong state sector in it. But there was to be no talk of any political liberalization. And uh, here, the party still retains its uh, uh, its place, uh, it's very jealous of its authority that it derives from being a Leninist vanguard party. And there is no opposition uh, it, it brooks no opposition to that, and it was, uh, in, I think it, it, made that quite clear in Tiananmen Square in 1989, where, uh, again, Gorbachev-style, uh, the students were demanding Gorbachev-style liberalization, uh, of, of the polity, and uh, CCP, CCP was in absolutely no uh, mind to stand for that. Two, two and a half years, two years and uh, two months later, other tanks rolled into the streets of Moscow in that failed push of August of 1999. And they were surrounded by people who, you know, walked all over them. So in some ways that's maybe the difference between how sort of communism came to an end in the two places. one of them, the Communist Party, is still very much in power, uh, even though it presides over a capitalist economy.
1: Let's talk about how these two periods of post-communism kind of compare to one another. Um, obviously, this is another point of divergence because you see the creation of independent nations in Central Asia. But are there any kind of ways to, to once again, link the region Um are there similarities that they share or is this kind of a continued divergent path?
2: Um, that's an interesting way of putting it in some ways, I mean, the, the divert, I mean, the end of communism uh, really brought about a reopening of the old Soviet-Chinese border there. So for a quarter of a century between 1962 and, uh, the end of the 1980s, that border was really sealed. And there was very little, in, uh, inter, um, very, very little exchange across it. So that beginning in sort of 1989, that began to be opened up and there, there's more trade, more commerce and more news being exchanged across that than was the case in the period of communism. But in other ways, yes, there has been a divergence because the the five uh, Soviet republics became sovereign states and they refashioned themselves as as national states and, um, and, and joined the world and international organizations. Xinjiang, on the other hand, has been increasingly Integrated into China. I mean, the process began in 1949, but it has really been redoubled since uh, the Open Up the West campaign of the the late um, 19 uh, uh, that began around to the year 2000, and since then, uh, n- new kinds of infrastructure have and and a never ending. Um, Han Chinese settlement have tied Xinjiang into the rest of China in ways that even in 2000 were um, not quite unimaginable, but, but uh, that was uh, not the case. And okay. yeah.
1: Sorry, Can yeah. you tell us a little bit more about, I, I'd like to connect kind of um, your perspective as a historian, looking at the history of Xinjiang over a couple centuries, but especially in the 20th century, how how do we contextualize what's happening in recent years or, you know, even with, um, I know that there were, I want to say in 2009, there were major riots in Durham. Chile, mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, since 2016 or 2017, we have the introduction mm-hmm. of the so-called re- uh, re-education camps, we see a, a rise in incarceration of the region's Muslim population, forced sterilization, separation of families. How do we make sense of this historically? Is this, um, you know, wh- why is this happening?
2: All right. So I think historically, uh, I mean, this is the latest... the campaign that started in the fall of 2016 of mass incarceration and surveillance is perhaps the latest, maybe the final chapter in China's long quest to integrate Xinjiang into China. And, you know, uh, but now it uses a new Way of thinking about that process. So, uh, up until 1949, Xinjiang was officially part of China, but the central government had had rather little sway over it. And that you could trace that back all the way back to the 1750s. The central authorities had had rather little direct control over Xinjiang up until 1949. So since then, uh, that process has uh, continued. There was, you know, they, and then it has been redoubled since the fall of the Soviet Union. So one of the lessons that the Chinese Communist Party learned from uh, the the experience of uh, the Gorbachev years was that, Uh, the Soviet policy of uh, managing nationalities was completely wrong It gave the natives too too much power and they brought down the uh, the Soviet regime. So since then, there has been a steady curtailment of the already quite limited nationality rights uh, that the uh, Chinese Minzus, uh, the nationalities uh, had enjoyed. So there's been a steady cur- curtailment of that in both in fact and in theory. Um, and in the last decade or so, there's been sort of a, a talk of a second generation Minzu uh, policy that has to be, uh, where this, all this talk of autonomy has to be cur- curtailed uh, quite drastically. So that's one thing. Um, With uh, Xinjiang, of course, uh, the the improvements in the infrastructure over the last 20 years have brought, given the Chinese state, a far greater ability to control it as well. Um, The other thing that happened was a shift in China's and the Chinese Communist Party's language about how it sees Xinjiang and its um, uh, and discontent there. The discontent is there, uh, and the you know mere economic growth will not make it go away. The they Uyghurs and other people in Central Asia uh, in, in Xinjiang do see. Chinese rule as problematic and foreign. And if if in the post-war period, Soviet Central Asians had come to identify with a Soviet Union that was ultimately, in many ways, uh, a universalist state, Uyghurs in China really cannot do that because China is always seen as a nation state, ultimately, of the Han Chinese. And so there is this constant sense of uh, injustice and oppression that then produces um, protests that often turn violent. But how do you explain that? For the Chinese state, there is no reason for any of that discontent. So it must be down to Outside influences, up until the turn of the century, or certainly up until the end of the Soviet Union, uh, the Chinese state's diagnosis of Xinjiang's problem was that it was caused by pan Islamism and Pan-Turkism, and that's what led to uh, that's what led to um, uh, separatism. Then over the course of the 1990s, that language began to, sh- began to shift. And uh, we begin, began to hear of the three evils of separatism, religious extremism, and terrorism as being intertwined, that those were put into the charter of the, sh- uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in, the 19- in 1996. And then came 9-11 uh, after, in the year 2000. And after that, uh, and the emergence of a global language of um, anti-terrorism that is promoted by the United States in this great war on terror. And Central Asian states have also used that to, to uh, attack Islamic opposition or what they see as Islamic opposition, but uh, the, in the... The, C- uh, the Chinese Communist Party has really gone to town with that. And since 9 um, 11, uh, all we would discontent is nothing but religious extremism and terrorism. And the solution to that is uh, to basically, you know treat that as a mental illness, that Islam and Uyghur culture just become mental illnesses uh, that have to be cured through uh, re-education. And so in that sense, uh, I think there is, um, I mean, there have been a number of these um, turning points or or, or milestones uh, in the evolution of the Chinese state's policy towards Xinjiang. There's 1991, the demise of the Soviet Union, uh, 2001, uh, the uh, uh, 9/11 that gave them a new language to talk about, and then 2009, the massive riots in Urumqi that had nothing to do with uh, either terrorism or religious extremism, but about Uyghur discontent. Um, but I, I think finally the Other, the last thing I would say is that over the course of the 1990s, the Chinese state seems to have realized that its hold on Xinjiang is really uh, strong enough and its global position of the Chinese state is strong enough that it, it can do whatever it wants in Xinjiang, regardless of any consequences. And China's that is what uh, that that china today is a very different place from china in 1979 or 1989 its economy has uh has increased exponentially and it has more resources to bear than any chinese state ever in the history of china has has had and the Uyghurs are at the receiving end of that Oh.
1: Adib, um unfortunately you know sorry to end on, on such a somber note yeah. um, but you know this is the state of things um, I'd like to thank you again for um, just touching the surface on um, some of the themes that you explore in your book and if for listeners uh, who are interested I would encourage them to uh, pick up uh, the book and and give it a more thorough read um, I'd like to end here but before we go, Um, I just wanted to ask you kind of a final question about any future projects that you might have in mind. This is kind of a tradition uh, on the channel. So we'd love to hear um, about, about any future projects that you might have in the pipeline.
2: Oh, I think I'm going to take a little break. I have said it all, (laughs) Uh, uh, but I think I will go back to the 1920s. I find that decade endlessly fascinating, much more so than the 1930s. There was a sense of openness and uncertainty in Central Asia. And there are a couple of directions there. I think I have a lot of material that I uh, left over from previous books uh, uh, about Soviet state building and its fibles in the 1920s about the Basmachi, about Central Asian, the first generation of Central Asians who joined the party. So that's one thing. And the other is uh, maybe see what, if I can do something with the fact that all sorts of people from outside of Central Asia were uh, running around there in the early nineteen twenties, there are Turks, there are Iranians, there are Indians, there are people from Xinjiang as well, um, all with various kinds of ideas about overthrowing empire in various parts of the world, and and how they sort of work with the Soviet vocabulary of revolution and and connect that to anti-colonialism on their own terms. Um, there's a a lot of threads out there i'm not sure i'll be able to tie them all together or have enough find enough documentary traces of all of that to do anything but that's one thing i have in mind something to look forward to
1: thanks again adeep uh for having for coming on the show and and um it was a real pleasure to talk to you talk to you uh
2: about your book that's entirely my Pleasure. Uh, you have you let me talk about my book. I'll, I'm very happy to do that. Thank you.